At this time, we're going to hear God's word together. Uh, so please take out your own copy of God's word and any note-taking materials that you need, uh, whether physical or digital. If you're using digital devices, please turn off all notifications and put aside any distractions as best as we can so that we can give our hearts and our full attention to the preaching of God's word. Uh, let me pray for us again as we uh, jump into God's word. God, you are our God and we are your people. So as you speak your word to us, help us not only to understand or agree, but to be transformed by your word so that we may be formed more and more into the likeness of Christ, that we might experience more and more of the blessedness of living in your kingdom and being called your people. So Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we are currently in part 41 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the Gospel of Luke together. So let's get right into today's, today's sermon. It's titled, Two Opposing Kingdoms. Uh, when I was growing up, there was something called the Pepsi Challenge. There would be a taste test between Pepsi and Coke. They would get people who were hardcore fans of Coke to do a blind taste test between Pepsi and Coke, but they weren't labeled. And then the person would tell them which one they thought tasted better. And to their surprise, many of the hardcore Coke fans, when they couldn't see the labels of the two drinks, they ended up saying that they liked Pepsi better than Coke. Well, I'm not cheering because I'm a hardcore Coke fan. <laughs> uh, but this test is kind of similar to the topic that we'll be looking at today. Uh, you could call it a kingdom challenge, where there's a test between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus is going to get the religious authorities who say that they are hardcore followers of God to do a, a test, so to speak. And they'll surprisingly find out that they seem to like the kingdom of Satan better than the kingdom of God. But this kingdom challenge is not just for the religious authorities of Jesus' day, but it's for all of us who are hearing God's word today. And he wants us to see that it's not just something to take for granted it's not enough just to say that we are followers, but which is it that we really are choosing each and every day? So the one thing for today is this. Choose either to be blessed in the kingdom of God or oppressed in the kingdom of Satan. Choose either to be blessed in the kingdom of God or oppressed in the kingdom of Satan. I know that this seems like such an obvious choice when it's stated like this, but in our everyday lives, the choices are rarely presented uh, like this. And so that's what Jesus wants to address in today's passage because he wants us to see that there are only these two options and he wants us to hold them up side by side so that we would see clearly and consciously choose the obvious choice each day. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 28. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. And just to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage, throughout Jesus' ministry, he preached about the good news of the kingdom of God. And earlier in this very chapter, in the Lord's Prayer, he taught his disciples as children of God to approach their heavenly Father and pray, your kingdom come. But in today's passage, Jesus will make it very clear that not everyone experiences the blessedness of belonging to the kingdom of God. Rather, there is an opposing kingdom with an opposing prince who cannot rest unless he is oppressing all those in his kingdom. 
And Jesus warns all who hear to carefully choose which kingdom they will belong to. So that's where we are and what we'll be looking at more closely in today's passage. So let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. It says this. Now he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, when, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and, breasts, and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in two parts. First, choosing between two opposing kingdoms. We'll see that in verses 14 to 23. And second, consequences of belonging to each kingdom. And we'll see that in verses 24 to 28. So first... Choosing between two opposing kingdoms. And we'll see that Jesus and Satan are rulers of two opposing kingdoms. Verse 14 says this. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. So here we find Jesus casting out a demon from a man who was mute. Not much description is given about how Jesus did this. But all throughout the gospel accounts, he does it the same way. All Jesus seems to do each time is simply rebuke the demon with just a word. It listens and it comes out. That's it. So in this instance, here is this man who has been presumably mute for a long time. Everyone in the town knows who he is. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes by and rebukes the demon with just a word. And the man is speaking again. Just like that. It's so anticlimactic, but that was just the point. Nobody could cast out demons like Jesus could. And this was no magic trick where Jesus just kind of randomly picked someone from the audience. No, they knew this man for many years. He was not a fake. And nobody was denying that this was a great miracle that occurred. And so the people marveled. They were amazed. At least many of them were. But not all. Verses 15 and 16 then say this. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. From the other gospel accounts, we know that the some of them here were the Pharisees and the scribes, or the religious authorities of the time. And after seeing this great miracle, they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. 
Beelzebul was a name attributed to Satan, which becomes clear later in this passage. So essentially, the religious authorities were saying that Jesus is an agent of Satan. And it's only by the power of Satan, the prince of demons, that he is able to cast out demons so effectively. This was slander of the worst kind. This was calling good evil, calling light darkness, calling the son of God the son of Satan. Still, there were others that didn't take up the mantle of slander, but they opted for something not much better, cynicism. This was not honest skepticism, but this was insatiable, I cannot be satisfied cynicism. They weren't satisfied with the miracle that they just witnessed right in front of their eyes that nobody was denying. But they wanted to test Jesus further. And so they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. This wasn't good enough. You know, Jesus will address the cynics more in the passage that we'll look at next week. But here, Jesus begins to address the slanderous accusations of the religious authorities. That he's somehow casting out demons by the prince of demons. So how does Jesus respond to them? Verse 17 says this. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. You know, apparently the slanderous comments were not made public to Jesus, but they were being said in private among themselves. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he makes their private gossip public. And he shows them how illogical their slanderous accusations against him really are. He first gives a general principle that everyone would agree with. You know, usually a kingdom fights against another kingdom. But if a kingdom fights against itself, it will eventually destroy itself. But if the kingdom language is too conceptual for us to grasp, Jesus brings it home, literally, in talking about a household or a family. Unfortunately, all too often, families are ruined by divisiveness. Perhaps siblings war over the control of a family business or an inheritance when the patriarch or the matriarch has passed away. Or perhaps the husband and wife have locked themselves in a pattern of undermining and cutting each other down rather than encouraging and supporting one another. And if that's the case, then it doesn't matter how much the parents love their children. At that point, because they are not on the same page, the whole family's broken. You know, whether it's siblings or parents that go to war against each other, the result is the same. A divided household falls. And sadly, I'm sure we all have either experienced or witnessed that happen to too many families. Now, what does this general principle have to do with the slanderous accusations against Jesus? Verse 18 says this, and if, Jesus, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. This is a rhetorical question because based on the general principle, the answer is so obvious already. If Satan is divided against himself or against his own kingdom, his kingdom will not stand. There's no way that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. Otherwise, Satan would effectively be destroying his own kingdom, and that is totally nonsensical. Jesus then takes their questionable logic one step further. Verse 19 says this, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In verses 17 to 18, Jesus exposed their flawed logic. 
But even if he were to accept their flawed logic, Jesus is now exposing their inconsistent logic. Jesus was renowned for how effortlessly and effectively he cast out demons. But he was not the only one to cast out demons. Of course, there were Jesus' disciples that he sent out with his authority to cast out demons in his name. But there were also their sons or Jewish exorcists who would attempt to cast out demons as well. So if Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then by the same logic, why aren't they accusing their own Jewish exorcists for casting out demons by the power of Satan as well? You know, obviously, none of the Jewish religious authorities would say that their own Jewish exorcists are doing so by the power of Satan, but rather by the power of God. But if that's the case, then why can't they acknowledge that Jesus, who is doing the same thing, but much more effortlessly and much more effectively, that he's doing it also by the power of God. Why can't they admit that? They're being inconsistent, totally inconsistent. But let's think for a moment. Why are they giving Jesus such a hard time? It's because Jesus is not just an exorcist. His exorcisms validate his teaching. And it's his teaching that is most threatening to the religious authorities. Jesus taught that he has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus taught that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus taught his disciples to call God Father. And to his apostles, he taught that he is the Christ and that he would be delivered over to the religious authorities to be killed and on the third day be raised. In essence, Jesus put himself at the center of his teaching. And he said things about himself that were not proper for any man to say unless he was God himself. And on top of that, Jesus will later explicitly say that the Pharisees are full of greed and wickedness and are fools. And he will warn his disciples against their hypocrisy. So as you can imagine, the Pharisees and scribes were not very fond of what Jesus taught. And so here, they're trying to invalidate his exorcisms so as, as to invalidate his teaching. But by, basically, but by saying, therefore, they will be their judges, or they will be your judges, Jesus basically tells them, go ask your Jewish exorcist by whom they cast out demons. And he knows that they will attest that it's only by the power of God that these demons are cast out. Why? Because Jesus has already established that Satan will not cast out his own demons. Therefore, if anyone's casting out demons, it can only be by the power of God. And so their sons will validate Jesus' exorcisms, and by implication, they will validate his teaching. Verse 20 then says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus exposed their flawed and inconsistent logic, but here he now begins to give his own logic or really the logic of scripture. If Jesus is not casting out demons by the power of Satan, then the only rightful conclusion is that he's doing so by the power or the finger of God. And if Jesus is casting out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. You know, so far, Jesus has only referred to the kingdom of Satan. But here, he introduces a rival kingdom, the kingdom of God. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am not part of the kingdom of Satan, as you have been falsely saying. 
but I am part of the kingdom of God. But there's something even more that Jesus is saying. He's saying that the kingdom of God has come because the king has arrived. At the start of Jesus' ministry, he taught that he is a spirit-empowered servant from the prophet Isaiah who has come to bring about the future glorious kingdom of God where God will right every wrong and establish a new community that will live in true godliness. And one of the signs that would accompany the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God was the setting at liberty those who are oppressed. So as Jesus is casting out demons or freeing those who are oppressed in unprecedented ways like nobody has ever done before, it's clear evidence that the kingdom of God has come because he, the Messiah King, has arrived. It doesn't make sense for Satan to cast out his own demons. But if Jesus is the king of the rival kingdom of God, then it makes perfect sense that Jesus is casting out demons in unprecedented ways, that he's liberating those who are being oppressed by Satan's demonic forces. But are Jesus and his kingdom on equal ground with Satan and his kingdom? Are they two equal superpowers that are forever fighting each other with no clear victor? Absolutely not. But just by the finger, not even the arm or the hand of God, Jesus effortlessly and effectively cast out demons with just one little word of rebuke. He doesn't even pray. He just says the word and the demons come out. And whenever the demons even see Jesus, they recognize who he is right away and they tremble or shudder in fear. They call him the Holy One of God and Son of the Most High God and they beg Jesus not to torment them. Clearly, Satan and his kingdom are no match for Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus makes this clear in what he says next, where we'll see that Jesus is stronger. He's stronger than and he overcomes Satan. Verses 21 to 22 say this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Here, Satan, the prince of demons, is pictured as the strong man. And contrary to what the Pharisees and scribes were saying, Satan doesn't attack his own kingdom. But he's fully armed and ready to guard his palace. But Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, is pictured as the stronger one who attacks Satan and overcomes him. He strips him of his armor, or as the book of Colossians says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And then he divides his spoil, meaning that all the goods that Satan was trying to guard and keep safe for himself, Jesus plunders and gives them away as gifts. In context, what are those goods? They're people. It's all those whom Satan has kept oppressed in his kingdom, whether through possession, deception, accusation, or temptation. It's all those who, whether knowingly or unknowingly, belong to the kingdom of Satan. But Ephesians 4 pictures Jesus as the conquering and victorious king who gives gifts or the spoil to his people. And what are those gifts? They're people. He gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So by the mere finger of God, 
Jesus, the stronger one, attacks, overcomes Satan. He plunders him and sets free those who are oppressed in the kingdom of Satan. And then he repurposes them and gives them as gifts to build up his own church in the kingdom of God. So contrary to what the religious authorities were saying, Jesus is not aligned with Satan. But he attacks, overcomes, plunders him. And in light of these two opposing kingdoms, Jesus now confronts all the hearers with the hard truth. Verse 23 says this. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here Jesus uses mutually exclusive language. And this is the whole point of what Jesus has been saying so far. All the exposition up to this point is about this very point. You're either on team Jesus and his kingdom, or you are on team Satan and in his kingdom. There is no neutrality when it comes to kingdom allegiance. And Jesus gives two simple metaphors about fighting and shepherding. You're either fighting with Jesus, or you are fighting against Jesus. You're either gathering the flock with Jesus, or you're scattering the flock with Satan. You're either joining Jesus in bringing his people together, or you're joining Satan and his demonic forces in driving people away from Jesus. The 72 disciples that Jesus sent out earlier were obviously on team Jesus. They preached the good news of the kingdom of God. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. And Jesus said that as they participated in his ministry, he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They were joining in toppling, they were joining Jesus in toppling the kingdom of Satan and gathering people into the kingdom of God. But the religious authorities were unknowingly on team Satan. They were slandering Jesus. They were discrediting his miracles and teaching. They were joining Satan in opposing the kingdom of God and scattering people away, sorry, and scattering people away from the kingdom of God. All the while, they thought they were hardcore followers of God. Again, you're either on team Jesus and in his kingdom, or by default, you're on team Satan and in his kingdom. You know, that may sound so shocking, but this is all over scripture. The Bible says that we were all once dead in our sins, and we once followed the ways of this world and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan. But when we put our faith in Jesus, God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave us our sins. So to enter the kingdom of God is to transfer kingdoms. We're always a citizen of some kingdom, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. But none of us are without citizenship. None of us are without a kingdom. We all belong to one or the other, and we all serve one or the other. Now, the reason this is so hard for us to believe and accept is because Satan is the father of lies and the deceiver of the whole world, and he disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan does not want anyone to be aware of the reality that they're in his kingdom. Rather, he wants them to think that neutrality and indifference to Jesus are a viable option when it's not. He wants them to think that they're in the kingdom of God and even serving God 
All the while, they're really serving the purposes of the kingdom of Satan. Is that not what the Pharisees and scribes were blinded by? They were the religious authorities. And yet, they're slandering the Son of God. And they end up plotting his arrest and crucifixion through bribes, false witnesses, and all kinds of manipulation. They thought they were serving the kingdom of God. So, so wrong they were. When we think about those in the kingdom of Satan, we ought not to think of merely those who are in a satanic cult or those who are demon-possessed. We ought not to think of merely those who are given over to drunkenness, sexual immorality, or some sort of scandalous behavior. Rather, we also ought to think of those who are outwardly and obviously religious or moral. They seem to live good lives and do good works, yet they remain neutral or indifferent about Jesus. We also ought to think of those who are even in the church but who are bent on stirring up divisiveness and scattering people away from Jesus. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are two opposing kingdoms, and if we're not actively choosing to be part of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, then by default, we are part of the kingdom of Satan. And so Jesus confronts us with the reality that we live in and the choice that lies before us. And he asks, which kingdom will you choose to belong to? So first, choosing between two opposing kingdoms. And second, consequences of belonging to each kingdom. And in the second part, we'll see that those in the kingdom of Satan are oppressed. Verses 24 to 26 say this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Here, Jesus presents a man, presumably the previously mute man, who's liberated of an unclean spirit or demon, but not necessarily permanently. The demon roams waterless places or deserts, which is where demons were popularly understood to inhabit, but it cannot find rest. So even though it had been cast out, it returns and still refers to the person as my house. And when it comes back, the demon finds the house cleaned up, but most importantly, it's empty. There are no residents there. There is no strong man, no stronger one residing in the house. So the demon goes and gets seven other more evil spirits to enter and dwell in that person. To dwell literally means to settle down or live permanently. So basically, they have no intention of leaving. And the conclusion is that the last state of that person is worse than the first. It would have been better to be possessed by one demon than to be possessed by eight demons. But truth be told, it's not preferable to be possessed by any demon but it's better to have no demons. So what is Jesus' point in saying all of this? Jesus is not just giving a specific lesson to any person who had been previously possessed by a demon. That's not his main point. Rather, Jesus is using demon possession as an illustration for a broader principle of what it's like to belong in the kingdom of Satan. And this pertains to all the hearers whom he just challenged about making a choice between belonging in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. 
we notice a few principles here. The first principle is that Satan and his demonic forces cannot rest, but they are bent on oppressing people. The sole purpose of demon possession was to oppress and torment the person. But demons don't necessarily need to possess someone in order to oppress and torment them. Aside from possession, their normal tactics of oppression are deceit, accusation, and temptation. An easy way to remember this is D-A-T, as in dat, like that's the devil. In terms of deceit, Satan is the father of lies and the deceiver of the whole world. In terms of accusation, Satan literally means accuser. In terms of temptation, Satan has been tempting people to sin since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He is very good at tempting people to sin. And he switches back and forth so quickly and so seamlessly. He'll tempt you to sin and he'll show you and, and make you convinced that it's the best thing. But as soon as you, as soon as you do take, take him up on that temptation and you sin, he'll turn around so quickly and accuse you of guilt and condemnation and then try to crush you in hopeless despair. He'll say, how can God love you now? Don't think that God's going to keep on forgiving you. He's growing tired of you. He's going to stop forgiving, stop loving you. Just turn away from him now. It's not worth it. You're a hopeless case. He berates you with accusations of how unworthy and how unloved you are, which of course is a half-truth, which is the most insidious of lies. Yes, it's true that we are unworthy sinners, but it's completely false that we are unloved. No, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are loved. You know, Satan doesn't often start by telling us complete lies, but he wins us over with half-truths. And once we believe those, we become easy prey to believe complete lies. Satan and his demonic forces cannot and will not rest. They are constantly trying to oppress people in deception, accusation, and temptation. That's the devil, and we need to be aware of his tactics of oppression. The second principle is that we cannot remain empty or neutral, but we're all filled or influenced by something. A believer in Jesus Christ is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made permanent residence in the believer, and nothing can drive him out. Because the believer has the stronger one in him that cannot be overcome, he cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean a believer cannot be oppressed by evil spirits. Remember, possession is not the only way to oppress someone. There is a spiritual battle going on inside every believer. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and giving us new desires to please the Lord. But we also still have our sinful nature inside of us that continues to have fleshly desires for sin. And we also have a world around us that is constantly normalizing and tempting us to sin. And Satan and his demonic forces are constantly leveraging those things against us. So every day, the believer is faced with the question, what influence will I submit to? Will I be filled by the influence of demonic forces that constantly appeal to my sinful flesh and to the sinful world? Or will I be filled by the influences of the Holy Spirit 
that constantly appeal to the love and worthiness of Christ and the eternal satisfaction that I have in him. Everything we do is a surrendering to one of those influences. We are not empty houses. We're not living in a vacuum of no influences. But either the Holy Spirit is filling and leading us, or Satan and his demonic forces are filling and leading us. If there is no spiritual battle going on inside of you, but you find yourself constantly surrendering to your sinful flesh and to the sinful world with less and less of a fight, then that should be very alarming for you. That's not a sign of a believer who has the Holy Spirit indwelling him that's hostile towards those sinful desires. Rather, that is a sign that you've been more and more filled and influenced by demonic forces, that you've played right into their schemes of deception, accusation, and temptation. You've become such a comfortable home for them. We cannot remain empty or neutral, but we're all filled or influenced by something. The third principle is that belonging to the kingdom of Satan gets worse and worse. You know, that's obvious when the tactic is used, uh, when the tactic used is accusation. That leads to worse and worse despair. Constant discouragement or hopeless despair is a bottomless pit. And Satan loves to accuse us deeper and deeper into that pit. But it becomes less obvious that belonging to the kingdom of Satan gets worse and worse when he uses other more subtle tactics like deceit and temptation. In fact, we may even think that things are getting better and better as we belong to his kingdom, at least for a time. Imagine a child in a doctor's office getting his tetanus shot or some other vaccine against some debilitating or fatal disease. As soon as the child sees the needle, he starts freaking out and screaming and squirming. You know, for myself, I've needed to hold down my children on several occasions uh, where they were getting these vaccine shots. But imagine that there's another man in that room whispering to my child, see, your dad doesn't love you. He's putting you through so much pain. If I were your dad, I'd let you go right away. And let's say my child has the choice of who to follow in that moment. If he's deceived by the other man and chooses him over me, his true father, he might think that things got better. He didn't get the shot. He didn't experience that pain for that moment. But he'll one day wake up, as soon as he steps on a rusty nail, that is far worse than he could have imagined as he dies of tetanus. Remember, Satan is bent on oppressing people. He disguises himself as an angel of light, but he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is not on your side. He will gladly give you what you want. Success, sex, money, comfort, power, prestige, possessions, relationships, you name it. He'll give you whatever you want if he knows it will destroy you in the end. He presents you with the bait, but he hides the hook. And as soon as you're hooked, he pulls on that fishing line to drag you fast away. Life does not get better and better in the kingdom of Satan. But sooner or later, it gets worse and worse until the last state is not merely demon possession, but it's far worse. It's eternal condemnation for our sins. 
So those in the kingdom of Satan are oppressed, but those in the kingdom of God are blessed. Verse 27 says this, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So the crowd has witnessed Jesus cast out a demon. and They've heard him expose the flawed and inconsistent logic of the religious authorities. And they've heard him explain the nature of these two opposing kingdoms. And now there's a woman in the crowd, presumably one who marveled at him earlier. She's, she's seen the miracle. She's heard his wisdom. And she spontaneously blurts out this blessing upon Jesus' mother, Mary. It may seem strange to bless Jesus' mother at this point, but this was really a blessing for both Jesus' mother and Jesus. It was common at the time to praise someone by praising the parents. So it would have sounded something more like this. What an amazing man you are. Your mother must be so blessed to call you her son. Verse 28 then says this. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's true that Mary was blessed but it's not primarily because she was the mother of Jesus. It's primarily because she heard the word of God and kept it. In other words, you don't have to be the mother of Jesus to be blessed. But blessing is available to all who hear the word of God and keep it. The word keep here is a strong verb for obey. So how is hearing the word of God and keeping it a blessing? It sounds more like a command. But in scripture, God's commands and his blessings are all intertwined. In Genesis 1, the very first words that God spoke to Adam and Eve were a blessing and a command. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God blessed them with a command because the blessed life is living in obedience to God. His commands are blessings to us because they direct how we are to live in accordance with who he made us to be. If a car is supposed to run on gasoline, but I pour water into the fuel tank, it's not going to move. If a fish is supposed to swim in water, but I put it on land, it's going to die. And if human beings who are created by God are supposed to obey God, but we choose to go our own way, we will find our way not to the blessed life, but to oppression and ultimately eternal death. Hearing God's word is a blessing because it informs us how to live the blessed life that God designed for us to live in his kingdom. Satan lied to Adam and Eve, deceiving them into thinking that obedience to God was somehow holding them back from experiencing true blessedness. But the truth is that blessing is found only in obedience to God's word. That's how you live the abundant and eternal life that God would have us live. Now that does not mean that we are saved by our works. We are not. Nobody enters the kingdom of God by their own works. When Jesus began his public ministry, he proclaimed the gospel or the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is that God created us in love and blessing. And we were designed to live the blessed life in obedience to his word. But we have all chosen to be deceived into going our own way, disobeying God's word and finding ourselves oppressed and deserving of God's wrath for our sin. But God in love came as the person of Jesus Christ to live in perfect obedience to God's word and to die in our place for all of our disobedience to God's word. 
So that now, whoever repents of their sin and believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can be saved and become citizens of the kingdom of God. Nobody is saved by their own works, but only by the perfect work of Jesus Christ in our place. That's what all of God's word attests to. But if we believe in the gospel, we will resolve to live in obedience to God's word and experience the blessed life that he designed for us to live and that he died and resurrected for us to experience. That blessed life gets better and better. So as the last state is far greater than the first. Now what do we mean by blessed? How are those in the kingdom of God blessed? For myself, I became a follower of Christ when I was in university. I grew up going to church, but I left the church when I was in high school. And throughout high school, I did well in school, but I drank and I partied a lot. And that's what I continued doing as I entered into university. I lived for myself. And I would say at that time that my happiest moments were when I had a cold beer in my hands. I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't think that it was that big of a deal. After all, everyone's a sinner. But through the persistent invitations of my roommates, I eventually joined them in different church gatherings. And through reading, hearing, discussing, seeing the word of God lived out in the lives of those in the church community, one night as I was in my bedroom, everything started to come together. I felt a wave of guilt over my sin, but I also felt a wave of relief as I repented of my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I began to realize that if God's word is true, and if the good news of Jesus Christ that it testifies to is true, then there's no way I can believe this and not have my life change. If this is true, this should transform my whole life. I cannot be the same. And by the grace of God, that's exactly what happened to me and is still happening to me, even to this day. When I think about it now, it's so sad to hear myself say that the happiest moments of my life at the time was when I had a cold beer in my hand. If that was my most joyous time, how little and superficial was my joy. At the time, it was all the joy that I knew. But after having experienced the joy of my salvation, the joy of the Lord, nothing has come even close. In Christ, no matter what I do or don't do, I know that I am known, loved, forgiven, accepted. And that my Heavenly Father has adopted me as his child by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and nobody can ever snatch me out of his hands. I know that I am not a meaningless accident, but I was created to know God and to make him known to glorify him and enjoy him forever. I know that the sufferings of this life do not compare to the eternal weight of glory that I have in Christ. That no matter what tribulations come, I can take heart that my Lord has overcome the world. Because I'm united to him by faith, my end will not be suffering and death, but it will be resurrection and glory, and I long for that day. How can I even begin to describe such blessing. It's infinitely more solid and permanent than the joy of a cold beer, the joy of a gold medal, the joy of a prestigious job, the joy of wealth and possessions, the joy of a spouse or a child. It can weather the worst storms of this life. 
even at great personal loss, the Christian can still say, it is well with my soul. And blessed be the name of the Lord. But still, that doesn't mean that I don't struggle. I do. I'm prone to, to be anxious and troubled about many things. I've been deceived too many times into thinking that my identity is found in my performance. I've had the passing thought before that the people I love would be better off if I weren't alive. I've had very low lows before. But at the same time, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I know what it's like to have mercy and goodness follow me all the days of my life. Jesus, my shepherd, has comforted me with his rod and his staff and led me safely through valley after valley of the shadow of death. So if you're a Christian, then in any and every circumstance, remember that you have the unshakable blessing of an intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, now and forever. And how can that even begin to compare to anything that Satan would try to tempt you with? And so for all who are hearing the word of God right now, how will you respond? Will you choose to be blessed in the kingdom of God or oppressed in the kingdom of Satan? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to respond to his loving invitation to receive him as your king, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to know the love of our Heavenly Father. Repent of your sins and trust him alone as your Lord and Savior. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, we should humbly acknowledge that in and of ourselves, we would easily be overcome by Satan and his demonic forces. But because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. We have the one who is stronger in us, who not only guards us through faith, but also helps us to hold fast to Christ and every spiritual blessing that we have in him. And so, though Satan would like to blur the choices for us in our everyday May we hold up these two opposing kingdoms side by side as the only options so that we would clearly see and consciously choose the obvious choice each day. That it is far better to be blessed in the kingdom of God than to be oppressed in the kingdom of Satan. Here's a life application. There's just a few questions for us to reflect on in light of this passage. First, would you say that you're neutral or indifferent towards Jesus, or that he's your matchless king of your life, that there's nobody better than him, nobody more satisfying than him. If you're not sure, what do you think others around you would say? Second, how might Satan be deceiving, accusing, and or tempting you right now in the everyday? What bait is he using to hide his hook? Third, what are the blessings in Christ that you can remember and hold fast to in your everyday? We all need to hold that in the forefront of our minds if we were to see clearly. Because these choices aren't always so obvious in our everyday. We need to make it obvious by savoring, treasuring the blessings that we have in the kingdom of God. So once again, the one thing is this. Choose either to be blessed in the kingdom of God or oppressed in the kingdom of Satan. If you're able, can we all stand as we respond to God's word together? <clears throat> uh, can we leave the, the life application questions on the screen? 
I think this would just be a good time to immediately respond. Let's ask ourselves a hard question. I know that it's easy that once we leave this place, it becomes less obvious. We might have some strong convictions right now. It might seem so clear. But when we walk out the door, it's, it gets blurry again. So let's press these truths down into our hearts. Let's ask ourselves a hard question. Let's ask for God's help that once we leave this place, that we would still see clearly that he is the obvious choice. So much better, far better to be in the kingdom of God, blessed in his kingdom, than to be oppressed, enslaved, condemned in the kingdom of Satan. So however we need to respond right now, let's just come before God asking these hard questions and asking him for his help. Let's pray.